Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the LA area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. We are going to be in Titus chapter 2, as well as Matthew's Gospel chapter 15. Once again, those areas of Scripture, Titus chapter 2, as well as Matthew's Gospel chapter 15. Now, while you're turning there, I need to let you know that Foster the City is not a convenience for me, it's a conviction for me. Uh, It was many years ago that my wife uh, and I were serving in West Africa that I was recovering from malaria sitting on the beach. And I was reading James chapter 1, true religion is taking care of widows and orphans. And about 30 minutes later, a woman holding a child who was almost two years old comes walking down the beach. His mother had just died and she's crying Who in the world is going to help me care for this child? I can't raise this child. Lord knocks on my heart. What did you just read? And I said, Lord, you don't read a Bible verse and an orphan shows up walking on the beach. Like, this is not you. And he said, what did you just read? And she was crying, and I looked at her, and I said, we'll take him. And I literally took him like this. I walked him like this to my wife. I handed him to my wife. And I said, this is our new son. And I walked away and then worked out all the details with the lady. Today, he's our son whose name is AJ. And this is really how it happened. Since then, my wife and I have fostered over 50 children in our home. This ministry, we then started in Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. This ministry is a conviction. And my prayer is that you will be convicted one way or the other to figure out how we can solve the foster care crisis as a church in L.A. County. That's my prayer. Now, I also want to let you know We are beginning our Easter initiative this week. Rise Up LA. Rise Up LA. And this year, rise up into new life. We just signed the contract with Dignity Health, and we're going to be gathering as a church all together over at the Dignity Health Tennis Stadium. So I'm excited about it. But the reason we're beginning today is because there are two things that we're responsible in regards to the Great Commission. The first is to preach the gospel. That's your job, to go out into your world and preach the gospel. Now, I know some of you, as soon as I say that, you're going, I don't know if I can tell people about Jesus at my work. They could fire me. I understand. My job is to make disciples to edify and equip you for the work of the ministry, to raise you up and to train you to be able to accomplish what God is calling all of us to do so that we can all invite someone to that stadium to be able to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ and celebrate 
the resurrection. Now, you might be going, I don't know if I can do that. Man, the resurrection power is in you. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. My job is to prepare you to do it. Amen? So this Easter, rise up LA. We're looking forward to what God is going to do. But right now, Titus 2, Matthew 15, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I'm so grateful for this word and I'm so thankful for what you're doing in our lives. And Jesus, we want to be attractable for the gospel. So use this to help us along the way to evaluate Are there things in me that need to change so that I might be a fragrant aroma of Christ? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We have five senses to perceive the world around us. None of you know what's in this plastic bag. In fact, this plastic bag, I have a a cabinet filled with plastic bags that I go and I go into my plastic bag drawer. I don't throw any plastic bags away. Even when I travel out of the state, all plastic bags come home with me because we got to pay 10 cents for them every time we go to the grocery store. Plastic bags are very important. And what you put inside of a plastic bag is very important. Now, I know what's inside here, but so do you. You know there's something inside. You can see it. You have five senses to be able to perceive what's inside of here. You might hear it and go, oh, that's a plastic bag. Oh, and if you could smell it, you would steal it from me. But it's my plastic bag. Maybe you would want to taste what's inside this plastic bag. Oh, Pastor Chet, would you just let me touch it? You see, our senses attract us to certain things, and can our senses also repel us from other things? For example, when I go on a date with my wife, I love when it's me, her, and J'adore. When she wears J'adore. Oh, some of you thought that was a third wheel. No, that is a perfume. And when she puts on Jador, I am attracted to her. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes we'll go on a date and she'll put on essential oils. It repels me. (laughs) She smells like yard work. There are certain things that when we sense them, we're attracted to, and certain things that repel us. For example, my daughter's been staying with us for the last few days, and when I come home, my daughter loves to bake, and she loves to please her father and bake my favorite chocolate chip cookies. And when I come home, I can smell them in the oven. I can see the dough. I can even touch the batter, and I can put my finger. She doesn't smack smack my hand. I can put my finger in the dough and I can even taste it. And you know, I go to the oven and I look and I turn the little light on and there they are just forming. Some of you are like, we haven't had lunch yet, Pastor Chet. Stop. And I will stare at that oven. Now, I need to let you know, it's not a regular basis that I go home and I stare at the oven. In fact, I could care less about the oven. 
But when the chocolate chip cookies are inside, that oven I stand in front of it, open, open. Because it matters what's inside. For example, you don't know what's inside this bag, but I know what's inside this bag. But, and what I will do is I will take some of those chocolate chip cookies if I don't eat them all, and I will grab a plastic bag, and I'll put a cookie inside, and I'll bring it to work. Oh, plastic bags. But I don't know if you know this. I also use my plastic bags for something else when I take my dog out for a walk. Because if I don't use a plastic bag when I take my dog to go for a walk, my neighbors get very upset. Now, there's nothing wrong with holding this plastic bag. It's what's inside of it. And sometimes when I'm walking my dog, I've got to put my hand in the plastic bag. And then I have to reach down to the grass. And the touch, oh, it's warm. And the smell and the sight, it repels me to where I'm not holding the plastic bag like this. Oh, no, no, no. What's inside of it? I'm holding the plastic bag like this. And I can't wait to get rid of it because of what's inside of it. (laughs) Myself as well. In fact, if you think that's bad. I have a friend of mine that played a trick on his wife. Oh, he decided that before they went out for work that they have a dog, and he decided he was going to put some chocolate pudding on the carpet. So he put some chocolate pudding on the carpet, and he came home, and his wife went, Oh, no, the dog. And he went, Oh, the dog. So he went to go get that plastic bag to be able to pick it all up, and then he went over to it knowing that it was pudding. Oh, and he went, hey, honey, you dare me to eat it? And he put his two fingers in it. And he goes, do you dare me? Do you dare me? Do you dare me? And he went like this. And his wife bust out laughing. Because before they left for their day, she cleaned the chocolate pudding. True story. And when he put it in his mouth, it was so repulsive that not only did it come out of its mouth, so did their dinner. True story. Now you might be going, Pastor Chet, how does this relate to Titus chapter 2? Titus chapter 2 verse 1, let's pick it up there in verse 1. Recover. But as for you, speaking to Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine that the older men be. Let me explain. What we believe affects the way we behave, affects our behavior. What we believe affects our behavior. So we've studied what it means to be a man and a woman of God. Because if we really believe that what God has to say is true, what we believe should have already impacted our behavior. That the older men, look at verse 2, be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith and love and patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, 
teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bond servants or employees to be obedient to their own masters or bosses, to be well-pleasing in all things, not some things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may, take a look, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Honestly, Christians are incredible people. I mean, if we purpose to believe this and purpose to behave this, Christians are incredible people. I mean, think about it. Men, if they believe this, men who don't fly off the handle with anger. Women, if they believe this. Women that use their words to build up the people that are around them, their husbands and their children. Christians, in fact, have the direction and the power of the Holy Spirit to model the human being's greatest potential. Think about the kind of person we're talking about, but that's the whole point. There's a reason why God wants us to model the human's greatest potential. Uh, Take a look at verse 10. That they may adorn the outside world, may adorn the doctrine of God. Now, I'm going to read it to you in the New Living Translation because it's going to now make more sense with our illustration. Take a look. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. Jesus said it like this. You're the salt of the earth. You're to add flavor to the world. The world is bland without Christians in it. He also said that you're the light on a hill. In other words, in the midst of darkness, when you see the light, you go, oh, that's where I need to go. I need to head towards the light. Because our calling as believers are to attract people to the Lord. And the thing about it is all human beings are like this plastic bag. We're just human beings. But when you add the salt and the flavor of Christ into your life, when you become the fragrant aroma of Christ, well, not all human beings are alike. You can tell the Christian from the non-Christian because it matters what's inside of us. Because what's inside of us will either attract us to what's inside Or it will repel us from what's inside. You see, it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. So you know what's amazing to me? With all the Christians at Calvary Chapel South Bay, it's amazing to me with so many loving, chaste, patient, discreet, good Christian people out on the streets walking in L.A., it's amazing to me 
why so few people in our world are attracted to Jesus. Listen, I want you to hear. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. It's Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Listen to the kind of human being that we're talking about. Jesus gives the characters of the citizen of of the kingdom of heaven. Listen to what he says that we're supposed to be like. Poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, who are meek, those who hunger and thirst to do what's right. The merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Listen to the kind of people that we're to be on the earth. Humble, compassionate, meek, merciful, pure, peacemakers. That's a great human being. So once again, I ask myself the question, why in the world aren't there droves of people coming to Christ with so many incredible merciful people on the street, patient people on the street, loving people on the streets? I want to propose maybe an answer to that. He ends that character of the citizen of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Listen to what he says. You'll see it on the screen. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Can I tell you something? We have an enemy that hates our guts. He hates merciful people, compassionate people, patient people. He hates chaste and discreet people. He hates Christians' guts because he hates Jesus' guts. And he, the enemy, uses people to come against us. Let me tell you about people. People in the world can be hurtful when they're persecuting us. They can be hurtful and painful when they're reviling us and saying all kinds of lies about us. It can be hurtful. I was just driving uh, uh, down the other day, uh, coming up the 110. And here I am in my white Tacoma truck and a little brother, a little red brother, a little red Tacoma comes right down the line. And I just need to get over to the exit. Now, I need to let you know I'm from a third world country. We don't use signals in third world country in the Bahamas because there's too many cars and too few roads. So you just do whatever you can without letting anybody know what's about to happen. And you just try to get on the street. Well, I've had to learn to use signals here. So I just thought, oh, look, it's a little red brother. And there he is. So I'm going to be kind and I'm going to be gentle and I'm going to turn my signal on. I turned my signal on. You know what he did? He sped up. (laughs) Do you know what happened in my heart? I was going to follow him no matter where he went and cut him off somewhere too with my signal. It was amazing what was happening in my heart. You see, when things happen to us in the world, we've got to be careful that the light within us doesn't grow dim, that we throw out the cookies that are in our bag and we fill it with something else like bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. People in the world are going to hurt us because of our Christian character. And there's a tendency for us to become hardened, to become angry, to become upset. And no longer are we attracting people to the Lord. We actually might begin repelling people from the Lord. We even justify it in our behavior. Well, they're the world. They use naughty language, those naughty people. 
And we begin to judge them. And we begin to become critical of them. We justify our position of pain by denouncing their immorality, those unbelievers. Of course they're immoral. They're unbelievers. They don't have the truth of the word of God. And we've got to be careful that we don't become the moral police in our pain instead of being the moral agents in the world that God is calling us to be. We're called to be that. We're not called to be moral police. That's why Christian character is so important. And so in the closing of this section in Titus chapter 2, the Holy Spirit gives us three things to set our mind on in order to attract people to the Lord. Now listen, the world is rough. Little red brother, he cut me right off and I was polite to him. And it's amazing when you smile at people, they grunt back at you. The world is rough. And the Spirit knows that. That's why he says, we've got to be sober-minded about it. We've got to set our mind on this. Go back with me to Titus chapter 2. Maybe you'll write down the first of three points. Number one, because people can perceive with their senses, let people see your good works. To attract them to the Lord. Titus chapter 2, look at verse 6. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. In other words, this is the way I want you to think so you behave this way. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. He uses the word likewise because he's referring to what he said earlier. That you learn this and you purpose to live it. In fact, you learn it and live it so well you're sober-minded about it. That you have come to the point where you realize what God has to say about the way that I live my life is my priority. So he says, likewise. Now this word, like I said, has been used throughout And I know that he's identified some of these characters to specific gender roles. But some of these characters translate to all of us. Reverence, obedience, patience, and love. And now he's addressing another gender, young men. And let me tell you why he's addressing young men. Because young men are zealous. Young men are energetic about the things that they're wanting to accomplish. You put a 16-year-old on the soccer field and he's a defender, let me tell you something. He's not standing there going, okay, there goes another goal. Okay, there goes another goal. You put a 17-year-old kid in front of a video game, I don't even know how they know how to do their fingers and their eyes and everything like that, but they're passionate and they're zealous and they're energetic about it. Sometimes too much. Let all the parents say, very good. But I believe he's using young men as an illustration. Because if you take a look at Titus chapter 2, verse 14, take a look. Who gave himself for us, speaking of Jesus, Titus 2, 14, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, take a look, zealous for good works. We've got to have the energy and zeal of a young man on a soccer field. We've got to have the energy and zeal of a young man playing a video game. 
That in all things, we show ourselves a pattern of good works. In other words, what he's saying, let people consistently see you acting like Jesus. Because I need to remind you of something, church. We represent Jesus in the world, not ourselves. Did you hear that? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ... You represent Jesus in this world. In fact, the Bible says you are his ambassador. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Chet. We're ambassadors for Sally. We're ambassadors for John. No, no. We're ambassadors for Christ. That means we represent him. Now let me explain that. Let me help you understand for just a moment. If you're the ambassador in a country and you don't agree with the president of the United States or his policies or her policies for our future, let me explain something. And that I was not giving a political anything. I'm just saying a man or a woman could be president in our country. In, in this country, when you're an ambassador, even if you disagree with his or her policies, your responsibility is to represent the president, not your opinion. That's what an ambassador does. An ambassador doesn't have the right to represent themselves because they're ambassadors of the United States of America. We're ambassadors of heaven. We're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We just so happen to live on the planet earth. And our job is to represent Christ, not ourselves. And not just when we want to. Take a look what the Bible says. Titus chapter 2. In all things, show yourself to be a pattern of good works. That even means the things you disagree with Jesus on. That means even the things that you don't like to do that Jesus asks you to do. In all things, showing yourself a pattern of good works. Take a look at Colossians chapter 3. You'll see it on the screen, verse 23. The Bible says, whatever you do, whatever you do, that means everything you like and don't like, whatever you do, do it heartily. Give it everything you got as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You represent him on this earth, so it's your responsibility with whatever you're doing to let everyone be attracted to the Lord as they watch your pattern, testimony of consistently being like Jesus here on this planet. Number two. Number two. Because people perceive with their senses, let people hear your words to attract them to the Lord. It's Titus chapter 2. Look at uh, verse 7. Titus chapter, excuse me, we're going to pick it up there in 7b. He says, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. I'm going to give you a truth from Jesus. It's Matthew chapter 12. The Bible says this. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Have you ever had the proverbial hammer and the nail? And you went to hit the nail, but you hit your thumb, and out of your mouth something came out. (gasps) A naughty word. 
I haven't said that in a long time. And you're shocked and you're surprised that it came out of your mouth. I've got some news flash for you. It's because that word's been in your heart for a long time. It's not come out of your mouth. Eventually it will. But it's been in your heart. We can say defiling things because of our heart. It's Matthew chapter 15. Go there with me if you would. Matthew 15, the Lord opens up our eyes. I ask you to keep your finger there. We're going to go back to Titus, but look at Matthew 15, verse 11. He says this. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Again, we can say defiling things. Let me ask you a question. Is there anyone out here that has said something that they regret? Anyone? Anyone ever said anything that they regret? How many of you were shocked when you said it. And then you said something like this. Well, you misunderstood what I said. (laughs) No, that's not true. You said what you wanted to say, and I understood it completely. It was absolutely hurtful. You just don't like that it came out your mouth. I love when people give the excuse of, well, you misunderstood my heart. (laughs) Let me tell you what Jesus has got to say about your heart, okay? Take a look. It's Matthew chapter 15. Look at verse 16. Are you also still without understanding? The disciples, they didn't get it. So what Jesus is going to do, he's going to give them a biology lesson. He's the creator, so he knows our biology more, better than anybody. He says, are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understa- uh, understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach? It's eliminated. But those things which proceed out of the mouth, they come from the heart, and they defile a man. Now take a look what Jesus says about our heart. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, mean lies, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. How many of you are surprised with what Jesus says is in your heart? Now, some of you are going, oh, phew, I don't have some of these, really. Evil thoughts. How many of you are thinking right now, how long till he is finished? I am hungry. (laughs) Evil thought. Take a look at the next one. Murders. Oh, praise the Lord. I haven't done that. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 5? If you've been angry with someone where your blood is boiling, you've committed murder. Anyone's blood ever boiled? Bunch of murderers. Adulteries. Phew, didn't do that one. Adultery is relationship gone bad. It's anything that you've put in front of God more important than him, even your own husband and children. Fornication. This is sexual immorality. That could be showing up on your phone. You could be watching it on your feed. You see, once we make these words a little bit more 21st century... We begin to see, oh my goodness, what's in my heart? This is why we've got to wash our heart with the water of the word. So he says, in doctrine, you need to show integrity and reverence and incorruptibility. And what he's saying, the word of God has got to be the final authority in your life. Have integrity. This word means no compromise. 
The Word of God does not compromise to the culture. It just doesn't do it. The Word of God has reverence. And this is the idea of a student. You see, students were, to be a student in the first century world was a privilege. It was not a right. You could go to school if your family had enough money or a professor invited you to learn. Not everyone could read. So if you were a student, you were a student with reverence. And this word means you gave it everything you've got to pass every test, to learn everything that you could because this was a huge honor to you and your family that you were educated. So you considered schooling that, like revered. Do you hold your Bible? Or is it just when we get home, we throw it on the table and we never look at it again? Or are you like a student and study and dig into it so it can be the final authority of your life? But what about incorruptible? You see, incorruptibility means that whatever God says, he means it. And my job is not to agree with it. My job is to obey. That's my calling. And when those things are now washing the heart... Your speech will begin to change. The Bible calls it sound speech that can't be condemned. And this word sound, it's spiritually healthy. So I want us to think about the way that we talk and the things, the words that we use. Because I want to make this 21st century and help you understand what he's saying. If you've got sound speech, you wouldn't be embarrassed if what you were saying wouldn't embarrass you if Jesus was standing right there with you. Because can I tell you something? He is. Let me go back to my Tacoma. So little red brother comes passing by. I put my signal on. Little red brother speeds up. Couldn't believe it. A Toyota Tacoma just like mine. I could not believe a Tacoma brother would do this to me. You should have heard what was coming out of my heart. You. And then all of a sudden, I heard this. Be careful. Remember what you're teaching on Sunday. You know why I heard that? Because even though no one was in the car, Jesus was. Because... He promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, for some of us, that's good news. For some of us, that's not such great news. He knows what's happening in my heart. And he spoke to me and he said, Chet, if you don't get a hold of this when no one's around, you're a hypocrite. You see, Jesus was there in the car with me. And though I wasn't saying it out loud, it was happening in my heart. I had determined I was going to drive to Sacramento to cut this guy off. I mean, like something (laughs) was happening inside him. I could not believe that he offended me like this. But sound speech is something that starts in your heart where you don't have to apologize for something that you've said or something that came out. But I need to let you know it's not just what you say. It's how you say it. Because I could say, Jesus loves you. And I could say, Jesus loves you. Two different ways. It's why you say it. 
It's when you say it. It's where you say it. It's who you say it to. Sound speech is healthy all around. For example, the way that I talked about the birds and the bees to my two- and three-year-old is so much different than the way that I talk about the birds and the bees with my 16- and 17-year-old. Because I am going to express to the two- and three-year-old something that I'm uh, 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 not going to express to the 16-year-old, and the 16-year-old, there are things that I'm going to tell them that I'm definitely not going to tell the two-year-old. Because sound speech involves not just what I say, but who I say it to, when I say it, how I say it. For example, when you meet an unbeliever on the street, and they say simply, hello, how are you? And you respond, praise God, glory, Jesus, hallelujah. This is the day the Lord has made and the light of God is shining on me. They look at you and go, you're weird. They don't understand Christianese. They don't get it. So when you speak Christianese to them, it's like speaking a foreign language. For example, what are you doing? We're fellowshipping. What does that even mean to an unbeliever? And when you're speaking to an unbeliever, you've got to know how to speak. When they ask you, how are you doing? I'm fine. Thank God. They can understand that. Now listen, when you come to church and a Christian says to you, how you doing? And you go, praise God, glory, Jesus, hallelujah, the light of God is on me. Great! The believer understands the language. But when you go out into the world and you speak Christianese, they don't get it. So why not be real? Be the redeemed you. Speak in a language that they can understand. A friend of mine went out miss, uh, on evangel- uh, evangelizing out in the street. And a guy walked up to him and he said, hey, what are you doing out here? He was talking, hey, how are you doing? Oh, what are you doing out here? He goes, I'm being a fisher of men. The guy ran away. The guy thought he was trying to come on to him. We got to be careful with the language that we use. We've got to have sound speech to know how to speak to an unbeliever and how to speak to a believer. Because people are listening to what we have to say. Number three, let people with their senses, experience your way to attract them to the Lord. Let them experience your way to attract them to the Lord. It's Titus chapter 2. Go back there with me. Look at verse 9. Exhort bondservants, employees, to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in some things. No, no, no. All things. Not answering back to your boss, not pilfering from your boss, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn, key word, attract, the do- they may be attracted to the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Let people experience your way to attract them to the Lord. Now, I'm going to take a commercial break for just a moment. And I need you to see he's speaking to bondservants. He's speaking to workers. He's speaking to employees. God is concerned about your work ethic. 
So concerned, he uses the word exhort. That is a directive. Exhort bondservants. He's concerned about the way that we work. He expects that Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, applies to your job. You see, he expects that you go above and beyond the second mile, that you go above and beyond the standard and set an example. There's an expectation that you're not talking about the boss like everyone else. I hope every employee of Calvary Chapel South Bay just heard that. There's an explanation here that says, listen, I'm not talking back to the boss. I'm not talking bad about him. And I'm not stealing time from the boss with idleness and just sitting around during my nine to five waiting for the clock to strike five so I can get out of there. No, I'm going to be like Joseph. And let me tell you about Joseph. He worked for Potiphar Inc. in Egypt. And the Bible says he worked so hard that Potiphar Inc., increased in value under Joseph's leadership. And here's the thing about Joseph. He wasn't even getting paid. He was a slave. Now, he expresses the way that we're to work. Would you take a look there at verse 9? He says, to be well-pleasing in all things, church. We should be pleasurable. There should be a pleasurable way about us, not a miserable way. My grandmother, I called her Myrtle. That was her first name. We had that kind of fun relationship. She would always say to me, Chet, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And I'd always respond, Myrtle, let your face know. Some of us walk into church like this. I'm saved. Going to heaven. Hallelujah. Praise God, Jesus. Amen. Light of God is on me. <laughs> he says to be pleasurable in all things, to be well pleasing in all things. Christians should be pleasurable to be around. Are you pleasurable or are you miserable? Now listen, I know work. I know work can be hard. That's why they call it work. That's why they pay you to be there. I know it can be hard and I know the people that you work with can be hard. But it doesn't give us an excuse to let the world affect us. We're to affect the world. Our job is not to be like everyone else and just do the minimum. We need to apply the Sermon on the Mount to our workplace. We need to go the extra mile. Listen, if you work for Chick-fil-A, when someone comes, listen, when I'm depressed, even if I'm not hungry, I go through the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> because those people are, they've got to be Christians. Because when you meet them, hello, what sandwich would you like? I'm not even hungry. Just talk to me. <laughs> Sometimes you go to Walmart. Those people need Jesus. I'm, I'm going to change their blue vest to red. Let them remind them, you've got to be covered with the blood of Jesus. Excuse me, where's the deodorant? Over there. Listen, I don't know where you work, but when you come into the room, do people run? Or are they excited you're there? 
Because it should be pleasurable when a Christian walks into the room. People should notice the way that we work because Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now listen, I need to let you know something. You're not actually working for your boss. Don't know if you know that. Colossians 3, I'm going to prove it to you. Here we go. Bond servants, employees, obey in all things your masters. Just work the way you're supposed to work according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Do you know that you work for Jesus, Inc.? Now, I know your boss is miserable, but Jesus put you there. Maybe you're miserable and he wanted you to see it. You work for Jesus. Now, why are we pleasurable in our workplace? He says to us why we're pleasurable. He says, showing all good fidelity. Now, you need to understand what he's saying here. What he's saying is, showing all, give it everything you've got, this word fidelity, to win over or persuade people to the gospel. Whatever it takes, give it everything you've got to win people to the gospel. I'm working in such a way that people notice Christ in me, the hope of glory, even at work. Now listen, can I remind you that Jesus had a job to do to go to the cross and he really didn't feel like doing it? But he did it with all of his heart because his father asked him to do it and he did it for you and he did it for me. He set the example of what it means to love your enemy, to bless them, and to do good to them, to go the second mile, and to turn the other cheek. Gang, we are called to be the fragrant aroma of Christ. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. The Bible says, we are to God, look carefully, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ. So i got a question for you. When God picks up the bag called you, we're all a plastic bag, all human beings. And when God picks up the plastic bag called you, what's inside of it? Because it says, we are to God the fragrance aroma. When he picks up our bag, What does he sense? What does he perceive? Does he want to open it up and see what's inside because it smells so good? Or does he hold it like this and can't wait to get to the garbage can? What's inside your bag? This is a chocolate croissant from Coffee Life. And there's no more left. 
you are on your own. And I don't know, but when I opened this up and I sensed I smelled it, my mouth began to water. My body is just jittering right now with the joy and excitement. I would do another bite, but I don't want to cause you to sin. <laughs> Holding it and feeling its buttery texture and the layers of... Oh. I have a question for you. When you walk into a room, are you to God attractive or to God repulsive? He has called us to have Christian character so that when we go out into our world, we attract people to the gospel. So, Father, we come before you. Some of us in this room have been affected by the 405 and traffic. People in our world that are hurtful, even when we're nice to them and turn our signals on. And we've allowed them to steal our joy and we become miserable instead of pleasurable. And we need to be filled with the power of your Holy Spirit because the world is tough. But you've left us here to be your, not our, your ambassador. And I believe in this room there might be some that need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. You're disappointed, hurt. You put your joy in the wrong place. That's all that happened. You put your joy in people and things instead of in the Lord. And I'm just going to ask you, I want to pray for you. You need a filling of the Spirit. You, you've let the world, you've let the situation rob you of your joy. And you just need to throw that bag away and let him fill your bag with all sweet things, his Holy Spirit. Would you just lift your hands? I want to pray for you. And Father, I pray for every hand that's lifted. Lord, we need a fresh filling of your spirit. We've let the world steal the joy. But you've called us to be pleasurable, not miserable, so that we can attract people to the gospel. So Lord, help us to be attractive and not repulsive. To God be the glory. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. Our hands are lifted in surrender. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.